0: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists.
1: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Kat Arnie, and with Ben Velvler. Hello! And this week we are seeking out the science of the seriously small, that's nanotechnology. We're going to be going on a whistle-stop tour taking in just a handful of the many ways that nanotechnology hopes to enhance our lives. We'll be finding out how tiny flexible electronics could be worn over or even under your skin and how tiny silicon diving boards coated with proteins can tell us how superbugs evade antibiotics.
2: When the antibiotic binds to the peptide on the cantilever, it causes the cantilever to bend by a very tiny amount, just a few nanometers. The amount of bending is proportional to the concentration of antibiotic in solution, essentially how powerful the drug is in the body.
3: We'll also find out how sheets of carbon just one atom thick can be used to read the entire human genome in just a couple of hours, and how nanotech motherships can deliver exactly the right amount of drug directly to where it's needed. Plus, the plant genome that could solve the food crisis, how our fingerprints help us to feel fine textures, and how a new way to make LEDs could slash our household bills. And as if that isn't enough, in Kitchen Science Dave will be looking for silver in soot. That's all to come on
1: today's Naked Scientists. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is Chris at the The
0: Naked Scientists Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net.
3: Now, in a true piece of science detective work, researchers at the Laboratoire de Physique Statistique in Paris have found another reason why we have fingerprints. It's been known for a while that the distinctive ridges on the pads of our fingers help us to grip things, but now Julian Schibert and colleagues have shown that fingerprints also help us to feel fine textures and tiny, tiny objects less than 200 nanometers across through vibrations. Now, writing in the journal Science, they developed a special mechanical sensor which is fitted with a rubbery cap to act a bit like an artificial fingertip. Using either very smooth caps or ones ridged to simulate fingerprints, they rub their artificial finger across finely textured surfaces – they found that the cap with a fingerprint was actually made to vibrate by the contact at a frequency somewhere in the region of 250 hertz. That's 250 vibrations per second. This coincides with the sensitive range of a type of nerve endings found in the skin called the persinian corpuscles. Now there are two types of nerve ending that are known to be involved in detecting texture. There's some slow reacting nerves which are responsible for identifying the relatively coarse textures and they detect different pressures at Different places on the skin. But the fine details are reported by these Persinian nerve endings. Now they've only tested this so far with a series of straight parallel ridges, so not exactly the same as the swirly lines of our fingerprints. But their findings suggest that our fingerprints actually fine tune these vibrations, selectively amplifying certain frequencies to ensure that our nerves can pick up fine details.
1: Intriguing stuff. And keeping with the theme of nanotechnology this week, researchers at Stanford University in the States have managed to write the smallest letters ever, assembled from subatomic particles just 0.3 nanometers in size. And the researchers are particularly pleased with this achievement because it was Stanford scientists that first created the world's smallest writing back in 1985. But they lost their crown in 1990 to IBM, who famously arranged xenon atoms to spell out the company's name. Well, now they have their record back. But how how did they do it? Well, the researchers encoded the letters S and U, standing for Stanford University, by using the interference pattern of electron waves on the surface of a film of copper. Now, the technique actually projects a tiny little hologram of the letters, which can only be seen using a very powerful microscope. And writing about their work in the journal Nature Nanotechnology, the Stanford team's letters are more than four times smaller than those IBM initials. And they were created using a scanning tunneling microscope, which is used to push individual atoms around. And what the scientists did was they used it to put individual molecules of carbon monoxide into a special pattern on a film of copper that was about the size of a fingernail. Now, electrons are constantly whizzing around on the copper because it's metal. That's what electrons like to do in metals. And because electrons can act as waves, as well as what we know they're traditionally viewed as particles, but the electron waves get shaped by the carbon monoxide, pretty much like if you imagine a pond with stones sticking up in it and you make a ripple. Those ripples will will be disturbed by the stone in the pond and so you get interference patterns with these electron waves and this depends on the position of the carbon monoxide molecules on the surface of the copper. So eventually they create a consistent pattern that can basically be read like a hologram. Now, this does all sound pretty nerdy, but the, uh, the technique could be very important for the future of computing because it enables information to be stored at a much higher density than is currently available. It was thought that you could have sort of one bit per atom, one piece of information per atom. But this is actually uh, enables you to store more information. For example, the researchers could create different holograms on the same chip by using different electron wavelengths and this increases the amount of information you can store and pushes it way beyond our current boundaries of computing power.
3: That's really impressive and I thought the smallest letters ever were ones written by school children to pen pals that they didn't want. (laughs) Anyway, another bit of research this week is showing that reed warblers have found that mob rule can avoid being cuckolded by cuckoos. Now, cuckoos live a very parasitic lifestyle. They lay their eggs in the nests of other birds, letting those other birds spend their time and resources bringing up their young. From an evolutionary perspective, it's a very good trick if you can get away with it. But if you're the victim, then you're wasting your own resources on somebody else's DNA. Writing in Current Biology, Cambridge University researcher Nick Davis reports on how reed warblers use mobbing techniques to try and keep the parasitic cuckoos away from their nests. Mobbing is, however, a very risky strategy. It's very energy intensive and it exposes you to predators. It may not even prevent the cuckoo from getting through. Worse still, sometimes these reed warblers mistakenly mob a sparrow hawk which looks a little bit like a cuckoo, but the worse, worse than that, it actually feeds on reed warblers, so a really big mistake. Now, you'd think that some birds would just save their energy and they just reject any eggs that don't look like their own. But the cuckoos have evolved to be able to lay mimic eggs, which actually look the same as the reed warblers. So this establishes kind of an evolutionary arms race between parasite and host. So, what they did was place model cuckoos near the reed warblers' egg bearing nests, and then Davis and colleagues could observe how the warblers attempted to defend their nests. About half of the time, the warblers became aggressive and did this mobbing behaviour. And in the high-risk areas, this mobbing behaviour made them far less likely to be subject to a cuckoo visit than their more peaceful neighbours. But significantly, in areas where the warblers were at lower risk, so there were fewer cuckoos around, they were actually far less likely to show the mobbing behaviour. In fact, in those areas, mobbing was actually likely to attract cuckoos in rather than scare them away. Reed Wobblers were also shown to reserve this mobbing behaviour only for cuckoos, so not for any other predator, not for any other pest, showing that they adapt their nest defence strategy according to their conditions, which is actually very much like our own human military
1: intriguing stuff from the world of cuckoos and uh, and now another sort of natural world story which is related to climate change which is having a very big impact on food supplies now for example if climate change is in a major crop growing region it may not be possible to grow the crops that grow there normally anymore so scientists are investigating whether people who live in very dry regions that are only getting drier can grow alternatives to wheat and other food crops now one such alternative is a plant called sorghum and this is a type of grass that originally came from Africa and it grows really well under hot and dry conditions. So farmers in warm parts of the Americas, Asia and Europe are growing sorghum for food, animal fodder, as well as using it in biofuels and you can also burn the stuff to provide energy. Now this sounds like an all-round wonder plant, Uh, brilliant stuff and in order to uncover the secrets to its versatility and hardiness researchers who are in Munich have analysed the whole sorghum genome and this is the first time that the genome of a plant of African origin has actually been sequenced so lots of useful information there. And they published their results in the latest issue of the journal Nature. And the scientists say that their results will help us to understand more about how plants like sorghum resist drought and high temperatures and could help with the development of hardier versions of other crops in the future. Also, this new data is going to enable researchers to compare the genome of sorghum with rice and maize. These are two really important crop plants that have had their genome sequenced already. So this will tell us a lot about how crop plants evolve and the genes that give them their specific properties.
3: And it does seem that we're going to need to know this sort of information if we are going to tackle a changing climate and make sure we still have enough food. Absolutely. Also in the news this week, a new way to make light-emitting diodes, that's LEDs, and this could slash household lighting bills and help to make clean drinking water accessible to everybody. Professor Colin Humphreys from the University of Cambridge uh, joins us now on the line. Hi, Colin. Hi, Colin. Hi. So tell us a bit more about this. What's the new thing here? We've had LEDs for a long time. They are already turning up in torches, in home lighting. But what's the new method that you've got?
4: Okay, so they've been around for some time, they're in torches, as you say. They're not really in home and office lighting, and the reason is they're too expensive. So all the LEDs you can buy in the shops now are grown on a sapphire substrate, and sapphire is quite expensive. And what we've done is to develop a method for growing these LEDs on a silicon substrate. And in fact, we're going on a six-inch silicon wafer instead of on a two-inch sapphire wafer, And that's going to bring the cost down by a factor of 10 or so, a really big reduction.
3: Wow. And these LEDs are very energy efficient, I understand. How would it compare in terms of, say, compared to a normal incandescent light bulb?
4: Yeah, no, they're very energy efficient. And, you know, the global warming article you just had a few minutes ago, they're really going to help global warming. In fact, they'll help it perhaps much more than wind power will. So in terms of uh, uh, an incandescent light bulb, a tungsten light bulb, we're aiming to be 12 times as efficient as a tungsten light bulb, and we're aiming to be three times as efficient as a low-energy light bulb. You can go out and buy now. Already they're more efficient than a low-energy light bulb.
3: Wow. And is that for the same brightness as well?
4: And that's for for the same brightness, absolutely. And uh, and we want to really make them better quality and better bright light than than, than the low-energy light bulbs, which, as you know, they're not very popular. In fact, they're the biggest cause of divorce in the country now, I'm told, low-energy light bulbs.
3: (laughs) 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 Well, I didn't realise it Well, Hopefully, your gallium nitride LED lights won't be a cause of divorce. But I've also heard that these could help to make clean drinking water accessible to people. I understand that what you can do with these is make ultraviolet light.
4: That's right. So um, the light emission from, from the gallium nitrate, you actually have to add some indium to it to get visible light emission. If you add aluminium, you can get deep ultraviolet. Now, ultraviolet, deep ultraviolet of a certain wavelength It's about 270 nanometers. It destroys the nucleic acid in both DNA and RNA, and it stops uh, viruses and bacteria from reproducing, so it effectively kills them. So if we can make LEDs that emit this deep UV, we can kill all known viruses, all known bacteria. And you could put a ring of these LEDs on the inside of a water pipe coming into a home, say in the third world. And you could just water, which is you know, riddled with bacteria and viruses, you can make it harmless. And also it'd be useful, of course, for our country as well, but you know, particularly for, for third world people.
3: And, of course, we could use them in hospitals as well to ensure that things are sterile without having to go through the sort of chemical cleansing that we do now. As they are so efficient, does this mean that we could set this up with, say, a solar panel and actually make this water purification very portable?
4: Absolutely. So that, that, that's absolutely right. So these are very efficient. They'll run off four volts, which is ideal for a solar panel. So you can have a solar panel, a battery connected as well, if you like, and then have these connected to that. And you have, them for, you have these for lighting in the developing world, but also for water purification in the developing world.
3: Well, these sound really fantastic, actually, but what's different about gallium nitride that enables us to make this seemingly wider range of frequencies if we can make UV that we couldn't before? Why is gallium nitride so special?
4: Well, gallium nitride is called a wide gap semiconductor, and if, before it came along, the only light emission we could get from semiconductors was in, in the infrared and in the red and rather weakly in the green and the yellow. Because, sili- well, silicon doesn't emit light anyway, but gallium arsenide emits light and, and indium phosphide, but they're, they're narrow band gap materials. This has a much wider band gap. So, gallium nitride itself emits in the near ultraviolet. And then there's another material called indium nitride, which emits in the infrared. If you mix those two materials together, you can get any energy you want from the near-infrared going right through the visible spectrum to the near-ultraviolet. If you add some aluminium to it, you can go really into deep-ultraviolet. So this is a new material system. It's man-made. It can cover this range of the electromagnetic spectrum that we've never had before from a a solid-state semiconductor.
3: This really does sound quite incredible. When should we expect to see these on the market?
4: So for the home and office lighting, Scientists always predict the things that are going to happen before they happen. I think within the next five years, certainly, maybe two or three years. The UV problem is more difficult to to solve. We've already got the right uh, wavelength to be emitted, but the intensity at the moment is too low, so we've got to push up that intensity. I think, realistically, that may be 5 to 10 years, but I really believe it's going to happen then.
3: Well, clearly, getting fresh, clean, drinkable water to everybody in the world is still a challenge, and I suspect, unfortunately, it will still be a challenge in those 5 to 10 years. So, good luck. I hope that we get them to the market as soon as possible, not least because I'd like to see my own electricity bills slashed a bit but thank you ever so much for joining us that was professor colin Humphreys explaining how a new way of making gallium nitride leds could see dramatic cuts in home electricity bills as well as providing cheap clean water wherever it's needed keeping you abreast of the world's best science the naked scientists You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and Kat Arney. And there is also another way to listen to The Naked Scientists... You can go online and chat about the science in the show with like-minded folks at the same time. And that is in the virtual world of Second Life.
1: Yes, we are live at 10am Second Life time every Sunday. If you want to join us, sign up for Second Life, visit the sci Lands, and then search for The Naked Scientists. You can drop by our palatial mansion, you can relax on one of our sun lounges and listen to the show.
3: And speaking of ways to discuss science, you also probably know about scientists.com slash forum. That's where we have this thriving community of all sorts of people, professionals and lay people, talking science every day. We would like to say a very big hello to Eth, better known as Dr Beaver on the forum. He's been a fantastic contributor and he's always appreciated and we're all thinking of him.
1: Now, we are all suffering from the credit crunch and global financial collapse, but Ben and Dave may have an experiment to solve our problems.
3: Hello, welcome to this week's Kitchen Science, where Dave assures me that we're going to make silver out of soot. Now, Dave, this sounds fantastic. I've heard the saying that where there's muck, there's brass, but where there's soot, there's silver. I'm afraid we're not
5: actually going to silver, so all of our financial woes aren't going to be over, Ben.
3: Well, I'm sure it's a fantastic effect, knowing your sorts of kitchen science. So what do we have to do?
5: All you need for this is a candle, something which won't catch fire, which is opaque, something like a spoon, or we're going to use a mug. And a bowl of water. Okay, so very simple stuff.
3: Uh, We are using a candle. Is this safe to do at home? Well, if you think a candle's safe, it's perfectly safe to do at home, yes. Right, so all the usual precautions that you'd have if you were handling even a small flame, but it should be safe for people to try out at home. So what do they actually need to do? The first thing to do is to light the candle. Okay.
5: Okay. with our single candle burning brightly, what do we need to do next? Now you'll take your object, we're using a mug, and basically put it near the top of the flame but just slightly below it and move it round. You should find that the object goes black. Be careful, once you take it out of the flame, it could get quite hot though.
3: So we need to put it in the yellow part of the flame? Yeah, that's right. Not right at the bottom and not above the top. OK, so we need to be careful that we're not going to do it with anything that will melt or conduct the heat or catch fire. So a ceramic cup seems... Perfect for this, really. And we're just going to hold it just in the yellow bit of the flame so that we build up a layer of soot upon the cup. Now, it blackens very quickly, actually, and I can see how this would get quite hot. But very quickly it gets this layer of black soot all over it. Dave, what is actually going on there?
5: Most candles these days are made out of hydrocarbon, some kind of wax. So that's got carbon in it and hydrogen in it. Um, When you heat it up and start it burning, the first thing which burns is the hydrogen reacts with oxygen to form water. And you've still got some carbon in that flame. Now, if you leave it and it's still hot and it reaches some more oxygen, that carbon's going to react with the oxygen and form carbon dioxide. But if you put something cold, like a mug, in the way, then that carbon's going to condense and solidify onto the mug,
3: forming this black sooty layer. Okay, well, we now have a good patch of blackness on our mug. Hopefully it will clean up and i'll be able to make tea with it again soon but is this enough or do we need to try and coat the whole thing well i'm going to spend the next five or six minutes
5: covering this mug well, a good good half of it in a good layer of black soot and then what i want you to do is take the mug and put it underwater and look at the sooty bit
3: so, if you want to try this out at home, you'll need to take something that won't burn and won't melt and hold it in the yellow part of a candle flame until you get a good-sized area of black soot collected all over it. And then put the whole thing underwater and see what you can see on the sooty part. We will be back later on in the show to let you know what's happened to our mug
1: so they're not exactly solving our financial problems, but at least it is an experiment you can try next time you're using candles to save on the electricity bills. What do you think will happen to their sooty cup when it's put underwater? If you think you know, then get in touch. Our email address is chris at com.
3: You are listening to The Naked Scientists, and this week we're looking at the many ways that nanotechnology promises to enrich our lives. Still to come, we'll find out how tiny silicon diving boards can tell us how bacteria interact with antibiotics, and why porous nanospheres may help get to exactly the right amount of drugs to exactly the right place.
1: But first we're joined by Stephanie Lacour from the Cambridge Nanoscience Centre, where she's working on making flexible electronics that could be worn over your skin or maybe even under your skin. Hello, Stephanie. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. So tell us about your aim. What's, what's the issue that you're trying to address with your work?
6: So what we're trying to do is to interface electronic component with the human body and one of the challenges is that conventional electronics is typically made on very hard and flat surfaces and if you look at our own body we are a 3D object that is moving all around so the challenge is not only electronic but electrical but also mechanical because we need to find ways to make electronics that can conform the body and therefore use material that are no longer hard and brittle but materials that can be elastic just similar to our own skin for example. So kind of bionic man type thing. Yeah think about a six million (laughs) dollar man basically.
1: (laughs) What are the sort of Challenges. Um, What do you need to make electronics do to make them like skin?
6: Well, there are two challenges. The first one is to find ways to put active electronic component onto substrate that are very soft. And um, so the electronics processes that are available today are usually using fairly high temperature um, to deposit this material. And the substrate we're using to make skin like uh, devices are polymers. In particular, we're working with materials called elas- called elastomers. So, they're very so it's like a rubber band yeah. material. And these materials don't withstand very high temperature. So we need to find processes to deposit the device material at very low temperatures, typically below 150 degrees C. So that, that's one that's one one challenge. And then once we found a way to deposit this material directly on the soft material, we have to find um, good design or architecture for the overall system, so that we can, so that the electronic can withstand the mechanical deformation. So it's one thing to actually deposit the materials on to the soft substrate, but we also want to make sure the transistor is still working when we're pulling onto the, the structure.
1: Because obviously transistors are made of things like silicon, and you don't think of that as being very flexible. How are you trying to get around this problem?
6: So the approach we're following is to. Um, distribute onto the very soft substrate tiny platforms that would be rigid. And this tiny platform would host a very fragile material like the silicon for the transistors. And once you have this sort of pixel structure all across the elastomer, we would need to use very, very elastic interconnect to connect one platform to the other so that they can talk together. And so what we found a few years ago, um, I found a way to make um, stretchable metal. So we, by depositing very, very thin layers of gold directly onto an elastomer or so on a rubber band, I found that I can stretch it up to twice its length and it will not fail electrically. So from there, we've decided to push forward the technology and use this stretchable metal as interconnect for electronics.
1: So basically you've got an
6: elastic band covered with gold
1: with all these kind of little transistors studded into it and they'll communicate with each other. Yes, exactly. And so what sort of applications do you see for this kind Of technology?
6: Well, I'm particularly interested in interfacing with the human body. So um, there is a a lot of application in biomedical research. One particular project we're looking at is how to make prosthetic skin. So a skin that a patient who's lost a limb, for example, could, a skin that they could wear just like a glove, so they would wear this um, on top of a prosthetic limb, and the skin will allow would allow them to get some sensory feedback, which is not possible today so they prosthesis
1: so they'd be able to feel sort of how hard they were touching something or how hot and cold it was
6: exactly so we 're trying to implement various sensors directly onto this rubbery substrate, like um, temperature or touch sensors, so that we can um, mimic sensory function that are embedded in our own skin.
1: And how how are things going at the moment? What sort of stage are we at with this technology? Uh, We're at a
6: very infancy stage. So at the moment, we're really evaluating the technology to make these. uh, We we know how to make stretchable metal, so we're investigating how we can implement these to make um, strain and touch sensors. So this is pretty much where we are in the sensing at the moment. We're also evaluating how to make the transistors directly onto these rubbery step straight with the platforms. So we're just starting. So, uh, And presumably a big issue is trying to make
1: all this electronics talk to the human brain, which is, well, it is nerves and electrical impulses. Right. That must be a big challenge.
6: So this is the, the sort of the second aspect of the project. So we in, in my group, we're looking at ways to make this prosthetic skin, but there's also application where, where we're looking at ways to use these very soft uh, electronic devices to interface directly with the nervous system. And so because the again because the human body and in particular the nervous system, is made of extremely compliant material, we cannot use a silicon chip to interface directly a nerve uh, for a long time so what we're what we're doing is to use this polymeric and elastomeric substrate with embedded electrodes in it to Connect directly with a with a peripheral nerve, so a nerve that is into in the limb, not in the spinal cord or the brain, but really in the limb, and see how the ner- how we can pick up the um, electrical signal from the from the neurons. Once we can do that, then the idea would be to connect this peripheral nerve implant directly to the prosthetic skin, so that uh, we could take the signals that are coming out of the prosthetic skin, convert them into a neuron format, if you want, and then feed that directly into the implant, which would then communicate to the nerve and then back to the brain.
1: It sounds like really exciting stuff. Presumably you have a a very multidisciplinary team, so you have to bring a lot of different people together. What what sort of range of scientists are working on this kind of technology?
6: So I'm an electrical engineer by training, uh, but in the team we have people who are material scientists, um, uh, biophysicists, uh, neurosurgeon, And so the, the, in particular for the, the project onto um, the peripheral nerve implant, I'm working with lots of people here in Cambridge and in a couple of other universities in the UK. Where um, So it's extremely important to have a collaboration between engineers and the medical field. Without the, uh, for a good um, collaboration, we really could not do that. And the old question is, you know wh- when do you think we might see the bionic <laughs> bionic man um, not tomorrow, <laughs> so it will take a very, quite a long time. I think we f- surely along the way we'll have some devices that will have um, short clinical application. But uh, the long the final project, probably 25 years or so.
1: <laughs> so watch out for the beta versions. Well, that's Stephanie Lecour from um, the Cambridge Nanoscience Centre, and she's developing these electronic materials that could be uh, implanted over our skin, over prosthetic limbs, or even in our skin. Now Stephanie's going to be here for the rest of the show. So if you have any questions, our email address is Chris at the com.
3: That sounds fantastic stuff, doesn't it? But for now, antibiotic-resistant infections remain a huge problem, and any technology we have that can aid the development of new drugs to overcome this will be incredibly useful. So this week, Mira has found out how nanoscale diving boards coated with bacterial proteins could help us to develop stronger antibiotics.
7: This week, I'm at the London Centre for Nanotechnology, which is a joint venture of University College London and Imperial College London. Now, I'm here to see a new way of screening antibiotics, which could help speed up the search for antibiotics against the ever-increasing hospital superbugs like MRSA. I'm here with Rachel McKendry, a reader in biomedical nanoscience here at the London Centre for Nanotechnology, and she helped develop this technique. So, Rachel, how have you been screening the effect of antibiotics against bacteria?
2: Well, we've been developing a novel nanomechanical approach to study antibiotics and to understand more about their mode of action and the mechanisms of superbug resistance.
7: And how have you looked into this?
2: We use arrays of tiny silicon diving boards called cantilevers, which we coat with different peptides found in bacterial cell walls. We then inject different antibiotics in solution and for our studies we've focused on vancomycin which is in fact one of the most powerful antibiotics that we have in the battle against resistant superbugs.
7: But how does putting bacterial proteins on a diving board and then putting a solution of antibiotics help you learn
2: about the effect of these antibiotics on the proteins? When the antibiotic binds to the peptide on the cantilever, it causes the cantilever to bend by a very tiny amount, just a few nanometers. But we can detect this by shining a light source onto the very end of the cantilever and measuring its position on a photosensitive detector. And what we found is the amount of bending is proportional to the concentration of antibiotic in solution. And from this, we can learn about the strength of the interaction, the binding constant, which is a measure of how, essentially, how powerful the drug is in the body.
7: So does this mean then that the greater amount of bending you measure, the greater the damage to the
2: bacteria? Yes, exactly. That's our concept, that the binding generates huge mechanical consequences on the bacteria.
7: And just here in front of us, we've got an example of one of the silicon chips that you used to mount the bacterial proteins onto. Now, it's tiny, but it's about half a centimetre long, so we can actually see
2: it. You're right in the sense these are relatively large objects. They can be seen with the eye. But if you look very closely at the top end, you can see the silicon cantilever arrays. These are the diving boards at the end, but it's their thickness that's the critical factor in determining their properties. They're 500 microns long, so that's half a millimetre long, 100 microns wide, that's typically the width of a human hair, but the thickness is only 900 nanometers, and this means that it can detect very tiny changes in forces at the surface of the cantilever.
7: Now a key part of this experiment was that you used bacterial proteins from bacteria that were resistant to antibiotics and also ones that were sensitive so you could see the difference between sensitive and resistant bacterial strain.
2: Yes the peptides differ by a single amino acid mutation and The mutation confers a deceptively simple change in the way that the drug works. It deletes a single hydrogen bond from the pocket between the antibiotic and the peptide and the binding of the antibiotic to the peptide found in drug-resistant bacteria is a thousandfold weaker than those found in drug-sensitive bacteria. This renders the drug therapeutically useless. So we've been fascinated with understanding this process and essentially hope in the future that we can design new antibiotics that combine to these peptides found in resistant superbugs.
7: Now one of the kind of true benefits of this particular technique is that it can hopefully screen the effectiveness of antibiotics quite quickly. What makes this so much quicker than the other techniques currently being used?
2: Well, firstly that it's label-free. This means that you don't need to use fluorescent or radioactive probes as you might have to with other technologies. And this has an advantage in terms of time and cost, but also labels can potentially perturb the way a biomolecule works. Other advantages are that they are immediately compatible with silicon microfabrication technologies. And what I mean by that is that it's possible to scale up the number of cantilevers readily for high-density arrays to screen potentially thousands of drugs per hour. We hope it will provide a, a new way to understand how antibiotics work and hopefully develop more powerful antibiotics in the future.
3: So thousands of potential antibiotics could be screened at once to dramatically speed up the search for the tool to combat our superbugs. That was Rachel McKendry from the London Centre for Nanotechnology talking to Mira Senthilingam about how diving boards could help us leap forward in the fight against superbugs. Laying the facts bare. I say the naked scientists.
1: You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arnie, and with Ben Valsler. And today we're looking at just a handful of the many ways in which nanotechnology may enrich our future lives.
3: Now, as an understanding of our genes and that of our food and everything else pretty much becomes more important in knowing what diseases we may develop and in fact how to treat them or in fact avoid them, fast and efficient ways to sequence our genomes becomes ever more important. Dr. Henk Postmer from the California State University at Northridge thinks that nanotechnology could actually have the answer. Hello, Henk. Thanks for joining us.
8: Yes, hi, hi. Good afternoon.
3: Well, I hope you've got better weather over there in California than we have here in Cambridge because we're actually getting snowed on, which I'm sure isn't a problem for you.
8: Always sunny, always
3: sunny. <laughs> well, I'm very jealous. But how would we go about how would we use nanotechnology to read DNA?
8: The idea has been has been uh, kicked around by a few scientists for uh, for for a few years and uh, the idea is that uh If you would have um, somehow two uh, metallic electrodes connected to a single base of a DNA molecule, then if you would read its conductance, uh, you could tell the difference between the different types of the A, C, T, and G. So if you could somehow scan your electrodes on the molecule, you could read off the the sequence. Now, what we are planning to do is we're planning to use uh, electrodes that are fixed and then have them uh immersed in a reservoir a reservoir of liquid and we would introduce DNA on one side and then we would apply an electric field and the electric field would drive the DNA molecule through that pair of electrodes and then while it goes through it zips through you read off the conductance. So deceptively uh simple <laughs> simple thought experiment uh but it turns out it's actually quite hard to do and uh people have been trying to do this with big electrodes, let's say if you make electrodes out of gold materials, they typically are pretty thick. So let's say they would be about 20 nanometers thick. And then your DNA molecule, of course, has a distance between the different bases of 0.3 nanometers. So you would have at any point in time 60 of these bases in between your electrodes so it's very hard to resolve any kind of electrical signal due to a single base.
3: So you'd get so, an indication of what bases might be between your electrodes but you wouldn't yes, actually you be would, able to read each one.
8: Exactly, you would get some kind of a, a statistical measure of the average perhaps or something like that. So what, what, what I've been proposing is to use um, graphene as the electrodes And graphene is uh, is a new material that was discovered by uh, Landry Heim in uh, Manchester, in your country, um, about uh, five years ago. And it's a a single layer of carbon, and it is uh, extremely robust. It is a very good uh, electrical conductor. And um, because it's a single atom-thick material, if you would make electrodes out of those, um, you would be able to resolve the single basis inside the DNA molecule. That's the that's the basic idea of what I've been working on.
3: Well, it sounds, as you said, a, a deceptively simple idea. Um, <laughs> but you also imply that it's just an idea at the moment. Do you think... What, what do you think the challenges will be until you can actually make this happen?
8: Well, um, a, a few of the things have been solved already by, uh, by you know, uh, several people in the world. Like, one of the things that you need to do is you need to be able to make a membrane that can uh, be immersed in a liquid and survive, you know, the typical... Uh, capillary action that is uh, associated with having something as thin as that in the liquid and um, people have solved that Uh, they've made thin membranes one of the other things that you need to do is you need to be able to make a tiny gap and we've identified a few potential technologies that allow us to make a a, a thin gap but i think that's the first thing that we're actually working on right now but that's the first thing that we need to be able to do
3: so this would need to be a gap that's exactly the right size to let through dna one base at a Uh, time
8: Exactly. So it has to it has to line up very nicely uh, because, um, you know, if you would even make your gap about one nanometer thicker, uh, uh, wider than it is, um, in the ideal case, your current drops by several orders of magnitude. So it would be very hard to detect any kind of signal. That would be the first challenge, I would say.
3: Okay. And so what are the advantages of doing this? How quickly could you actually sequence, for example, the human genome? We know there are 24,000... Ish genes that actually work, and a load of stuff that may or may not be junk. How long do you think it would take?
8: Well, actually, the junk DNA is a very interesting issue. I, um, we we're proposing to uh, to just sequence the whole thing, um, you know, regardless of whether we we consider something junk or not, because I think that that is an open question whether junk DNA is actually has some kind of a function. But anyway, so uh, extrapolating from our our read time from a, for a single base, I think we estimated it would be about three microseconds if you would be able to use such a device for one single DNA molecule of the, you know, the human, then it would take about two hours to read the whole thing.
3: That's really incredible. And just yes. one last question. How much is it likely to cost, then, to sequence one human genome?
8: Well, um, you would have to uh, get some electrical equipment and make some, uh, get some material, of course. Uh, graphene, actually, is surprisingly cheap. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, the first of course, you know, my lab is very expensive, but I, I presume that if you want to do it again, you don't have to make any extra investments. So, I'm I'm I, I won't be able to <laughs> put a put a number on it, and certainly <laughs> certainly that's 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 something that has to be, you know, figured out later. But um, because it's a, you know, it's a single device and there's no extra preparation that is needed for the DNA material, you can just put it in the liquid and then you're you 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 will be done with it. You don't need to do any, you know, PCR amplification or you know, the radio uh, labeling, or you know, fluorescent readout, or any gel electrophoresis—all those, all those techniques are not required. It's, it's a. A a very basic experiment,
3: actually. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us. That's uh, Dr. Eric Postma from the California State University at Northridge, explaining how sheets of graphene could be used for rapid DNA sequencing, making it even more likely that everyone will soon have access to their own genetic profile.
1: God, I dread to think what's in mine. Anyway, the last stop on this week's whistle-stop tour of nanotechnological applications is the mothership for nanotechnology. (laughs) This is brilliant. Uh, a way that nanoparticles can deliver just the right amount of drug directly to where it's needed.
3: Yes, that's very true. I caught up with Professor Michael Saylor from the University of California at San Diego, another person enjoying the sun while we're in the snow, to find out how you can convince such tiny particles to be your drug deliverers.
9: So to get a material to deliver a drug, one of the themes that we've been developing is so-called mothership for nanotechnology. So we build a nanostructure that's fairly large. It's still a nanostructure, but it's large enough to hold a smaller component inside it. So we'll make these porous uh, silicon-based nanostructures that can contain a drug. So one of the really favorite projects right now, a really exciting one that I have going on, is working with a guy named Bill Freeman, who's the director of the Jacobs Retina Center here at UC San Diego. And he sees patients every day with a disease called macular degeneration, and that's a disease of the eye typically age-related, kind of one of the main causes of blindness in older folks. And there are no drugs available that you can give to a patient as a pill and have it get through the stomach and make it into the eye. And so they unfortunately have to take their patients in and stick a needle in their eye and inject the drug. The problem with that is that there is a chance of infection. And once you put the drug in the eye, it typically these kinds of drugs will only last for a month or two before they're all gone and then the patient has to come back in and be injected again. Bill approached me with this problem, and he said, you know, the only way we can keep the drug in the patient's eye for a therapeutically useful time is to massively overdose them. We have to inject a lot of drug in the eye. Uh, If we put a high dose in, the patient's very susceptible to problems. There's a probability of strokes and other complications that come from having too high of a concentration of drug. And so he knew we were working on these little nanoparticles that had pores in them, and he said, can you put the drug inside those structures Lock it up in there, keep it away from the body, sequester it until it's needed, and then have it leach out slowly so that the level concentration of drug in the body is much lower, still above the therapeutic level, so it's treating the disease, but not so high that it does any damage and what we are now developing are materials that can stay in the in the eye at least in the rabbit eye for 8 months
3: so how does it avoid the processes that usually recycle the fluid in the eye and actually would take away the drug that they'd put in there
9: if you had a material that you're putting into the eye and it stayed there even after it was being its effective time was done after it's already delivered its drug then eventually too much builds up and you're going to start occluding the vision And so the real key thing for that was to have these materials definitely dissolve away into nothing. But it has to dissolve away slow enough that the drug locked inside is delivered in a fairly smooth and and slow uh, fashion.
3: So this should mean that people suffering from AMD would perhaps have one nanoparticle administered every six months rather than an
9: injection of an excess of drug every month. Well, we still have to put a lot of drug in the eye, and so it really wouldn't be one nanoparticle. We would be injecting large quantities of nanoparticles, but roughly the same volume that the doctor now injects into a patient. Uh, The key thing is just that when that drug goes into that 100 microliter injection that's going into the eye, it's not all instantly available. Some of it is locked away, and it's releasing over a much slower time period. And when do you expect
3: that people will be queuing up for their clinics to have their nanoparticle eyeball injections?
9: Uh, That's a really tough question. We would like to get into the clinic within a year. We're at the stage right now where we're doing experiments with rabbits. And as you know, with any any material really, but nanomaterials in particular, we want to be very, very careful that we're not doing more harm than good. So the problems that may come up, infections longer-term, issues. Do the materials really degrade away to nothing? Are they getting eliminated completely? There's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But you know, one of the real challenges here with a nanomaterial is even if you think it's harmless, and I'm sitting here saying, well, these are made out of silicon dioxide or iron oxide, and that's a material the body can accept and degrade smoothly. There are great examples of nanomaterials that are made of things that are completely harmless that are really nasty, <laughs> Uh, For instance, carbon nanotubes, they do not degrade in the body at all. And so unless your body can eliminate them somehow, if it gets stuck somewhere, it's there forever. If you look at asbestos, the chemical composition of it is quite harmless. It's aluminum, silicon, and oxygen, and some iron, typically. So kind of the same sort of constituents that we're talking about here. Why is that particular aluminosilicate, that asbestos mineral, so harmful because it's in a nanostructure that doesn't degrade, it's actually quite stable. Even though it's, the elemental components are not toxic, when that material gets into the body, in the lungs in the particular for asbestos, it sits there and doesn't go away. The body can't dissolve it, and so those fibers will stay lodged in the lungs make lesions and cause problems. And so that's a real moral to the story of uh, nanomaterials. It's not good enough to just say, oh, the elements are harmless, You've got to know that the material itself will go away. That was Professor Michael Saylor from UCSD
3: on how nanoparticles can take controlled doses of medicines directly to the place they're needed. But if we're not careful with the structures we create today, we could be storing up problems for the future. Lifting the lab coat on the world's
0: best science. The Naked Scientists.
1: And now it's time to invite the polished and professional, but by no means
10: high-maintenance Diana Carroll back into the studio for our rather shiny question of the week. Hi, Diana. Why, thank you very much. Hi, Cat. Well, this week we are polishing up our act.
0: Hello, my name is David Walwyn, and I'm phoning you from South Africa. Many years ago, I was obliged to polish to a mirror finish the leather shoes and belt of a certain sergeant, and the only way of achieving the desired result was to use copious quantities of spit. My question is... Why does spit enhance the shine of shoe polish? And perhaps a related question. Modern shoes don't seem to require polishing. What surface finish is applied in the manufacturing, which gives these shoes an everlasting shine?
10: So why is spitting good for your shoes? Hello, my name is Chris
11: Pally-Williams, and I'm from a company called Leatherwise in Northampton, the UK. We're quite um, intrigued by the question posed by Dave as to why spit and polish is so successful on your shoes and the reason is actually all to do with protein and traditionally in the leather industry when we wanted a very highly glazed or highly polished shoe we used to use the protein that you find in milk and that's casein and it would have been applied to the leather surface and it would have been fixed in place with formaldehyde or formalin some people would know that as. And then we would have used a glass block and glazed the actual finish, and that would have given you this really high polish effect. In effect, that's what Dave is doing every time he spits on his shoes, because in your saliva, there's a high amount of protein. So by spitting on your shoes and then rubbing up to a polish, you're actually trying to glaze the protein in the same way we would have done traditionally many years ago. Dave also poses the question, or nowadays, you know, how a finish is different. We tend not to use the protein finishes, they're very brittle, we're not allowed to use formaldehyde in the same way that we used to use it and so we tend to use a lot of polymer finishes now and nitrocellulose, polyurethane, things like that and so we can achieve the same levels of gloss but in quite a different way. One interesting fact we came across ourselves was that actually it's best to clean your shoes when you're happy. The reason being that the protein in your spit or your saliva actually decreases if you're feeling depressed, and increase is when you're feeling happy. So if you want a really good gloss on your shoes, only spit on them when you're in a good mood, and that should solve all your problems
10: so happy spit makes for shiny shoes and on our forum jna noted that you have to spit on your mask when diving to stop it from steaming up could it be the same protein at work well i wouldn't recommend going around spitting on other people's sho- other people's shoes even to show them how happy you are it's a bit of a tongue twister that one well from the leather capital of northampton to what i think is a capital idea
0: hello this is paul from new zealand my question is a year or two ago, I was daydreaming of a light suit of armour which folk could put on and it would help uncoordinated fools such as myself to do taiji or ballroom dancing, either by giving me an electrical prod in the left leg or the right leg or left arm or right arm or whatever. Any
10: comment? Wearable robots, tell us what you think or send your questions of the week to chris at scientist.com or join the discussion on our forum. And that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum.
3: Thank you very much, Diana. We will see you again next week, I hope. Bringing the facts to bear.
0: The Naked Scientists.
1: You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me Kat Arney, and with Ben Valsler. Now it's time to get back to our kitchen science, the alchemicals experiment of trying to turn soot into silver. Let's find out what's
3: going on. Welcome back to kitchen science where we're trying to get silver or at least something a bit like it from soot. What we asked you to do earlier was take something that won't burn and won't melt. What we've chosen to use is a ceramic mug because it fits all those conditions and put it in the yellow part of a candle flame. What we've been able to do is get a good thick layer of soot on about half of the mug, so it now looks quite black. Now, Dave, the next stage is to put this under water, I understand. Yeah, that's right. I've got it here and I just put it in the sink full of water. Okay, so we're going to submerge our soot blackened cup into a sink full of normal water. I think Dave's used cold water, but then if you're going to put your hands in it, you might want to use something slightly warmer. And in it goes. That's quite amazing. The blackened bits, instead of looking black when the mug is underwater they look silvery and shiny so this is what you meant about getting silver from soot yeah that's
5: right and the other really interesting thing is if you take it out again
3: okay so we're just going to lift it back out of the water the silver's gone straight away some of the soot is washed off but the sooty part is totally dry all the rest of the mug has a thin layer of water on it but the sooty part is bone dry just like it was before you put it underwater Yeah, that's right, that's what I'd be expecting. So somehow a layer of soot not only makes this cup appear shiny and silvery, but it also actually keeps it dry. What's going on here? Well, soot, even in quite large lumps, is
5: fairly hydrophobic. It doesn't like water. This is because um, water molecules attract other water molecules very strongly, and they don't really interact with soot very strongly, so they'll tend to keep themselves to themselves. So soot chemically actually repels water it doesn't
3: like water and the water won't stick to it
5: well it will stick to it if you try very hard if you had some washing up liquid or if you really violently agitate the water next to it it will stick to it the soot on this mug actually has another advantage it's not smooth it's actually very very rough on a
3: nanoscale so is that because of the way that you've laid it down just by holding it in a flame you wind up with a very rough surface
5: That's right, you get lots of lumps of it forming inside the flame, which then kind of randomly condense in a big kind of pile on the surface.
3: And so how does the surface being really rough, in a very small scale, a nanoscale roughness, how does that make it even less attractive to water?
5: Well, you remember me saying earlier that water molecules attract each other very strongly. This means they have a property called surface tension and so the surface is trying to shrink all the time. So if the water touches a couple of the peaks in this rough surface, the water surface is trying to get as small as possible, and it won't touch the rest of the soot. So you get a layer of air between the soot and the water.
3: So instead of flowing down into the valleys of the rough surface of soot, it just kind of sits suspended on the higher peaks of it, and so you get little gaps between all of these peaks. But how does that make it look silvery? Well, because the soot is incredibly
5: hydrophobic, then you get a, actually get a layer of air trapped between the soot and the water. This means that you've got another surface of water. If you have looked upwards at the surface of the water in a swimming pool, it looks very shiny and mirror-like. Um, this is due to a process called total internal reflection, where light will get perfectly reflected off the inside of a layer of water. So when you look... At the sooty layer you're actually seeing the inside of a
3: layer of water which perfectly reflects light and so it looks silvery. So the structure and the chemical nature of the soot means that we get an extra layer of water and that bounces light back at us and looks silvery and mirror-like. And this layer of air that gets trapped there must sort of protect the soot from mixing in the water and that's why when we pull it back out of the water the soot is dry.
5: Yeah, that's right. And the same principle is used in nature all over the place to make surfaces which repel water and keep themselves clean. So various orchid flowers will have a very rough, slightly waxy surface. So when water hits it, instead of sticking, it forms droplets and rolls off, taking any dirt with it. And so this is why you
3: get those beautiful photographs of rose petals with gorgeous droplets of water on it, instead of just a layer of water all over the whole thing. And it's also why it's so hard to wash a
5: peach properly. The little hairs on it are very water repellent. So water just kind of runs off instead of
3: properly cleaning it. Well, it may not have solved our financial woes by making real silver out of soot, but it certainly made a nice shiny mug, although I think my fingers might get quite dirty when using it. Well, that's all we have for this week's Kitchen Science. Don't forget to check out our website at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchenscience, where there are loads more experiments, including other ones involving total internal reflection, such as using water as a fibre optic cable. We'll be back with more experiments next week. So
1: it's the rough nanostructure of soot that makes it repellent to water, forming a silvery surface on the sooty mug keeping it dry. We've got a full explanation of this along with loads of other experiments on the website that's scientist.com slash science. and Dave will be live in the studio next week with another fantastic experiment that you can try at home
3: And if you just can't get enough science experiments then it's well worth going to scientists.com slash sporran where Dr Otherford will show us some experiments that he gets from his kilt. These are science from the sporran videos. They're fantastic they are of course starring somebody looks an awful lot like Dave Ansell and may or may not be Dave Ansell and our own Diana O'Carroll who does a wonderful job. They're brilliant. Go and have a look. scientist.com slash Sporan.
1: That sounds like an excellent idea Ben. <laughs> um, we've got a couple of emails here from Naked Scientist listeners who are all over the world which is fantastic. We've had an email here from Rashid who's in Yemen who says he enjoys the programmes immensely. This is the only access that he has to the English language and science in the remote part of the world that is the Yemen. Keep up the good work. And we've also got an email from Tiara Francis, who's from St Vincent and the Grenadines, which is fantastic. Uh, she's keen on learning anything scientific, and she's an interested follower. So if you're out there in internet world, in Second Life, if you live somewhere really amazing, um, do write in and let us know. It's chris at We would love to hear from you.
3: Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. So many thanks to Colin Humphreys, Stephanie LaCour, Rachel McKendry, Henk Postmer and Michael Saylor for taking us through the wonderful world of nanotechnology. Thanks also to our production team, Diana O'Carroll, Mira Senthalingam, and driving the desk with us this week, it's Tom Simpkins. And finally, thanks to you at home for listening. Next week we'll be taking on your science questions, so we need you to let your curiosity run wild and get your questions into chris at com. There's more science at thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you again next week.
0: The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.